Hi, my name is Claire and I'm the mother of three teenagers with FESD. And I'm Jessica, a PhD student researching educational interventions for children with FASD. And together we are the hosts of a Spotlight on FASD, the UK's first podcast dedicated to shining a spotlight on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. FASD is a condition caused by prenatal alcohol exposure that affects hundreds of thousands of children across the UK. And we're here to bring these conversations out of the shadows and make sure that no one living with FASD feels alone. Hey, hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Spotlight on FASD. We are now on episode six, and we are very, very excited to introduce our very first guest to our podcast tonight, Raja Mukherjee. Hello. Hello. Hi there, how are you? Great, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right, thank you. End of a long day, but it's a, I'm quite happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you very, very much for joining us. We're really, really excited to start hosting guests. Cool. Yeah. So, Raja, would you like to introduce yourself for everybody? I'm sure many, many people know your name, but for those who may not have, who may be new to FASD, um, please give us a little bit of who you are. Okay, right. So, um, I am Raja Mukherjee. I'm a consultant neurodevelopmental psychiatrist. I set up the first... Uh, FASD specialist behaviour clinic in the UK and that was all four nations of the UK at that time um, back in 2009. First started diagnosing people um, around about 2004-05. Been involved in this now for nearly 18-19 years um, and sort of have, I think it's fair to say that I've helped move this the, the field on a little bit in this country and so and what's been nice is when I started uh, there wasn't really very many people around. There was people like Maura Plant, who was a mentor to me, and thankfully they were there, but she wasn't clinical. Mm-hmm. And so I had to learn from other people. And again, fortunately, there were people at the time who were coming across and this was starting off. So I had good mentors, like people like Ed Riley, mm-hmm. who would come across and I learned from them. Uh, but now I'm in a position to help other people. So like, for example, the Scottish group, I've been able to support them. People like Cassie, who is in Ipswich, I've been able to help her. And we're able to support people because there's more of us around. And and so hopefully that's moved the field onwards. So we're not all on our own anymore. So it's not lonely. It's nice. Definitely. Definitely. I think um, that, that leads into to probably one of our first questions. Um, and that is, what would you say the biggest challenges are around diagnosis? Okay, so the biggest challenge about diagnosis for families is getting it, probably. Um, you know, you just can't get it. Nobody really understands it or, or, or knows it. It's interesting when you kind of had thought about some of these questions because you sent them to me before to have a think about. Um, I was thinking about the, the biggest challenge about making a diagnosis probably is getting the information. Mm-hmm. because we don't have the information to be able to do it. But actually, reflecting on what you've just said, the biggest challenge I suspect for most families are they suspect this thing is existing, they suspect this may be there, but they can't get help. They can't get access to professionals. They can't get access to people who know anything about it. They have to be the experts. 
Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to be honest now. I lurk on some of these national support groups and just see what people are saying. Um, and I won't always reply because then you'll get dragged into a conversation. But um, but I lurk. And so um, you can see the challenges that people face just trying to get access to somebody who understands what they're saying, mm -hmm. just believes them. You know, that's the sort of thing. And that you hear that all the time. Um, people saying, oh, no, it's not a problem, is it? It's not a problem. You don't have that. Even if you know all the history, they don't they ignore it. And so it, I think for families, I guess it would be and you'll know this better than I will. But it, it is that whole I want help. Please help me and not getting it. And so that's the biggest thing. If you're talking about the diagnostic process, which is a different question in a sense, I don't know if that's what you'd meant, but if that is the single biggest stumbling block that I think you'll find for most people getting the diagnosis is not having the right information mm -hmm. um, because this is so much a information based situation and this is why I got a little bit frustrated by and we, um, by the the debate that happened recently about recording of 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 alcohol because actually it's such an important thing for kids is if we don't have it and this is not about women's rights or choice and stuff like that because we want women to have a choice but and we're not anti-women at all but yeah. we are coming from the side of um, what we need to diagnose the kids is that information if we don't have the information we cannot do it full stop mm -hmm. because for the majority of people you know it is not about having a classic physical presentation most of them won't have that and so if you haven't got that you have to have the alcohol history and that's missing half the time especially accurately yeah and our we we just recorded last night actually the episode that will go out before this is titled no shame no blame mm -hmm. and we've really really focused on you know the need to remove all the blame around alcohol use in pregnancy and the shame associated with that to make sure that women feel safe in in stating that that they have you know and, and the necessities of recording it you know we, we spoke about about that which is um you know you've just just supported our argument there which is uh... it's, it's it's hard for me because being a bloke you know if i say it you know it, it's like oh he's just a bloke he doesn't understand does he you can't have that but um it's there's so many women saying it you know it's yeah. not just me and that's the point is so I find it difficult because I'm a guy coming in to talk about pregnancy. I always find this a bit weird. There was a lot of men obstetricians as well. I sort of always thought that was a bit odd, but never mind, that's a different story. Um, but um, but the point being is that, you know, for me as a guy coming into this and saying that it's easy to be dismissed because you don't understand. You'll never understand because you can't experience yeah. it. Mm -hmm. And but the flip side of it is there are so many women also calling for the same thing that they can give their own experiences of this um, and you have to listen as well so it's not about choice and and sort of taking away women's rights this is about understanding what these kids need in order to get the help that they need. because these are lifelong disabilities in one sense now I one thing I want to emphasize and hopefully we'll leave with at the end of today is that I'm very keen that we change the narrative on this whole situation because it's all very negative and this is the thing about lurking you see all the negative stories that people have but these are kids that 
actually if you put the right support around them and you understand them and you help them they're awesome yeah they are awesome and they do really well and you can have really great qualities like i don't know if you saw that video that that they created that the 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 kids with fasd did you know that's brilliant you know i couldn't do it i'd love to do it but i couldn't do it but it's it's if you give them the opportunities and you support them they will achieve and you need to understand them to get the best out of them and that's what we want to do you can't get the diagnosis you don't understand you can't get the right measures in place to support them what happens is that's when the narrative goes bad and so what we're trying to do is to change that and get it to a position where things are much better mm-hmm. i think that's what makes this such a unique such a unique diagnosis because from my own personal experience if my children have extraordinary talents and skills they're they're they're, they're gorgeous kids and they suffer um, and they do suffer because I know there's a lot of people that you don't want to kind of brand any of it negatively and we are all about the positivity and I I am all about the positivity but they do suffer with it because it is invisible so people have automatically have such high expectations of them but what I've seen is with the right scaffolding and it has to be completely around them and it has to be completely around the parents and the carers with that scaffolding those kids can fly they can do what what, whatever it is that they want to do and I think that's what makes it unique because we have an opportunity with diagnosis at the right time to get the scaffolding in place and their path their life just goes on a different path and there aren't many disabilities where, where you can say that that can be the case. I think it's, I feel it's really unique in that situation. And that's why diagnosis isn't so important. And as a woman, and, you know, lo- lots of women on the NICE panel, you know, it, 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 it certainly wasn't, I think, it, I think a lot of the people, a lot of the press that I read, certainly a lot of the female journalists who were dead against the medical records being noted, I think they had it in their heads that it was a group of men on this panel deciding what was going to happen and it couldn't be further from the truth. No. Um, so that was really frustrating about it. Yeah, and I think that's the, that is the thing, is that I'd love to have a debate with some of these people, but I think me just being a guy in there is going to immediately allow me to, to your argument to be dismissed because of that. And it, that's not helpful because it, it shouldn't be about that. It should be about what's the right thing to do. Um, but... Um, it is important that we do have the debate and it's because it is about choice. Not everybody has to do it. Nobody, if you don't have to record that down, then we will just presume certain things and go from there. But actually, you know what? My mum's teetotal. She's never drunk a drop. You know, she doesn't like it. Well, she's probably had a few, but not not properly. She's so generally she's teetotal. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if I was to say to her, do you mind recording it? She wouldn't mind at all because she's just said, don't drink. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so that's so that is uh-huh. the issue is that it's pe- because we have this relationship with alcohol that we think there's something bad about it. But actually, I think if you ask most people, they'll just be they generally they may underestimate what they drink. And we know that because there's research we've done that has shown that that, for example, part of my PhD, we did a pouring game and we just basically gave people a different glass size and just said, pour what you normally would pour. And um, the average that people poured, uh, you're all giggling, I do it as badly as, as well. Actually, probably don't because I'm, I'm a bit obsessive about this. But um, you then get you poured it and it was about double what they should have done for a unit. And some people are pouring five 
units and I won't say who the name but one of the managers at my work I did this with them and um, they said oh I thought the big glasses so you get more in no but that's what they were doing so they were filling the big glasses thinking that's good isn't it I can get lots in this um, and that's what um, they went with but actually if they then report I've only had one glass mm-hmm. you know yeah you know we we talked a lot about, about this last night, didn't we, Jess, about the the whole shame and blame culture that comes from society's attitude towards alcohol. And, and, and people actually, a lot of people feel comfortable about the fact that they drink regularly or what they drink. And so they bring their own stigma to it straight away and jump on the defensive about it. And we just want to be matter of fact, I always use the analogy that if we if there was a certain brand of detergent that was that was used and it was brilliant everyone loved it and it was easy accessible socially acceptable but we knew that if you used it during pregnancy it could cause some difficulties for your children once they reach school and if someone were to say to you right okay so what you know when you found out you're pregnant now have you used this detergent actually i did from weeks you know i didn't find out until i was nine weeks and I was using that detergent. So I stopped now. And so right, we're just going to make a note of it because if we have any problems further down the line, exactly. we'll know to go down that path. And that and it is as simple and as straightforward as that. So the other thing that people misunderstand is that actually for most people who've got that low level exposure and who do stop, they will not have problems. Yeah. But exactly. there may be some who do. Uh, and that's the problem. We can't predict yet who and when is going to be at risk. If you have have drunk with it the further into your pregnancy you drink the more likely you are to create risks the higher you drink into your pregnancy the higher levels the more likely you are to create risks so people who drink a little bit now and again and have stopped properly stopped then actually the likelihood of causing proper harm to the child is low but you can't say absolutely nothing because we just don't know that because there are individual variabilities you two will have different risk factors based on your background the fact that you're different people with different genetics you know that will have an influence mm-hmm. you know your lifestyles will be different your diets will be different you know those things are protective or not as the case may be and so there's so many variables that are involved that you just cannot predict individual risk with this and so the easiest and safest thing to say is just avoid it if you can because that is no risk and that's where we went we got to i wrote papers which was published in um, 2004 in the BMJ and that was the one of the first times for about 20 years anybody published much on FASD in this country and we said avoid alcohol um, and that was following up a piece where I got plastered on the front of the Daily Mail I hadn't expected that and it was quite scary waking up to be on the front page of it um, um, and and basically says Dr Mukherjee says don't women shouldn't drink in pregnancy I was going did I really say that oh dear um, and then you kind of have to back up what you mean and the point being is that all I'd been doing was reading the literature at the time whilst I was learning and you reinterpret it and you go well everybody else is saying avoid it because of this shouldn't we be saying the same thing and why aren't we mm-hmm. you know at that time this was about 2002, 2003, I started doing the, the background reading in the area before we started getting into it. That's what you always do when you're doing learning a new area. And so I was basically collating that and sort of thinking, OK, well, that's what the situation is. But at the same time, um, a supermarket, a large supermarket brand, I won't name them, uh, but you can Google it, um, were put an advert out to recruit pregnant ladies to come and test wine because 
their taste buds apparently more sensitive. Mm -hmm. I've seen that, yeah. And so, and so, you know, this is the the situation that existed 20 years ago, um, and that was the difference in societal expectations and knowledge, which has changed. So now, most people understand actually that that broadly you should avoid it. That is generally accepted now. You don't even have to have the debate. You could see with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle that actually he went to water and he supported his wife and they were very clearly not there and they chose to do that. Brilliant. You know, it's now getting to the point where it's embedded into just normal practice that most people will do that. Some people can't stop. They have difficulties with alcohol abuse, whatever. That's a different situation. FASD will never completely go away because of that. But you can minimize the risk. And if we explain it to people, then people can have a better long term outcome. Um, you know, we change lots of things in pregnancy, some of which have bigger levels of evidence than others. There's a lot of evidence for alcohol causing harm. That's very clearly there. The level is not known. And that is why we say avoid it. You know, the likelihood is if you drink heavily, you are likely to cause harm. If you drink at low levels, you know, well, probably for most people, they won't do anything, but I can't say that, uh, not for an individual. And that's why we say avoid it. You know, what we shouldn't be doing is blame. And actually, to be fair, there we have to, on this side, be careful not to start labeling and sort of stigmatizing people who have had issues themselves, because we I've seen that as well. And that's mm -hmm. wrong, too. So call that out when we have to as well. Yeah. But but the effectively it is about being a balanced position and actually being able to state that because what we shouldn't be having is a slagging match between both sides when actually what we want is the best outcomes for the kids mm -hmm. and allow the women to have a choice based on proper information not hearsay one way or another yeah yeah that's it yeah definitely so we uh we touched very briefly on on the nice quality standards um <coughs> earlier as we were talking and we are wondering what what do you feel that is um what level of impact do you think the launch of the nice quality standards are going to have on the fasd world in in england in particular because that's so there's a difference between hope and and, and reality is i mm -hmm. hope it has a big change because the difference between guidance and quality standards is that you have to measure yourself against quality standards but I also know that that doesn't necessarily drive funding um, because I've seen that in other areas that, that you'll get something. But actually, um, you always all that ends up is saying that you read against this quality standard. And it, if there's no money, then they will prioritize it to something else. So cancer care is always going to get more money than your developmental services because people die from it. And that is the challenge is there's always a health service prioritization based on a limited funded NHS and the NHS has very good funding in some ways, but also doesn't meet the capacity and the availability and the resource demand that's needed. So you have to make choices. That's just the nature of it. And that is the challenge that we always have with these things is when you have to make choices, what loses out and new things are often the ones that take time to develop mm -hmm. compared to things that are established. And so what it will act as is a driver for change. It will act as something that people highlight as being in deficit, because I can pretty much tell you most places are going to be red for um, quality standards three, four and five, probably. Yeah. Um, 
they will be able to tick boxes to say we can provide post-diagnostic support because the government have now done national strategies to provide things like websites and other stuff where you can guide them to so they can tick that off to say you can get support that way potentially uh, the the diagnostic teams bit and the access to that most places when for example there was the the that national fasd previously no fast um did the 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 freedom of information request to CCGs and hardly any of them had any kind of idea about FASD at all. We know that referrals to us out of the hundred and something CCGs, less than a quarter, if not a fifth, will make referrals to us um, and understand the fact. I think people think we still are, don't realise we're even an NHS service, uh, which is quite surprising, but that's a different story. I think a lot uh, of people think it's a pri is a private oh, service. I hear that all over again. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. because people think when you refer to the NHS that you just get a referral and you're seen. And when we ask that you have to get funding for it, they don't realise that the way that, that it works in the NHS is that is the NHS gets allocated money regionally. And so Manchester will get a pot of money. We in the southeast will get a pot of money. And then it's for those local areas to decide what they think their services need. And if they don't have that service because it's rare or not commonly available, then you have a panel who come together and you make requests of to say, we want to send this to a specialist service and they have to be funded. My trust is not going to provide this for free my salary, my team's salary has to be paid for. And that is what you're paying for effectively is to cover the cost of that for that year. Now you shouldn't as the person pay for it. So if you were bringing your kids to see me, for example, you shouldn't pay for it. I didn't set this up for you to pay for it. I said it, the NHS pays for it, but somebody has to go through and approve it. And that's for sending people out of area. It means the money that was kept brought to the area to pay for people within your county or your area is being sent somewhere else. That's why they don't like doing it. Yeah. And they try and avoid that as far as possible. But it's not a private service. It is totally 100% an NHS service. Now, the difference is if the NHS refuse, the trust can take a certain amount of privately paid funding per year. So we can see somebody if they want to pay themselves, but I don't want you to. I prefer the NHS pay for it for two reasons. One, because I didn't set it up for people to pay themselves because I believe in the NHS. I don't do private work, full stop. And so we only do NHS work. And secondly, if they don't pay for it or if they don't get a referral for it, they never know the, the scale of the problem. It is there. And so, so, and so even if they reject it, if they get 50 referrals and they reject all of them, then they know there's 50 cases in their yeah. area they need to provide a service for, yeah. you know, and they're not doing something about it. And, you know, you've seen that because, you know, I'm the, my wider hats are ADHD and autism. So I, I'm a neurodevelopmental, I cover off all of them, mainly adults, but we also see the lifespan for this bit. What we've seen very clearly is when you first set these services up, you base it on how many cases am I sending out? What am I already paying for? So if I'm only paying for eight cases, I only think there's eight cases in the region. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, let's take it as to what the international prevalence rate was suspected at. So if you take the international standard and they've estimated the UK as about 3%. Now, there's a variability in that, as other people have said a lot more, some people have said less. But let's take that 3%, okay? that's more than eight people in a region, mm -hmm. yeah. full stop. And, and if they base it on eight people, they will soon find their services are overwhelmed. And that's what you find with these things is that people 
judge it and base it on estimates that are incorrect. And then they suddenly panic when they realize that there's a big demand. You know, our adult ADHD and autism services have nearly two or three year waits now because they completely underestimated demand. And, and actually that's happening all around the country. And that's the problem with new services. And this is where I hope NICE will help push the drivers, but it doesn't necessarily mean the money flows with it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think it is the start. Without that, you would have nothing. So it's a driver. It's really important. It's there, but it needs the money to flow with it as well. Yeah. Definitely. Do you feel like it's just the start, you know, that the quality standards will be introduced, but it might be a little while before the wheels kind of catch up and... So there's several things that we need to think about is nice quality standards are based on the Scottish guidance and the Scottish guidance is not completely applicable over here for various reasons. So the diagnostic bits are fine in a sense. You can argue about the detail of it and I'm probably skilled enough in the field to be able to discuss what I think is appropriate and not and also on panels internationally where I know some of the people who helped create these things and I know why some of the decisions were made um, but the point being is the Scottish system is a unitary system where there's only one health board really well in terms of funding that then spreads out between the different regions. England's CCG setup is very different and so we need a set of guidance that helps guide the CCGs beyond just what is the diagnostic approach to it and that bit is missing. Um, and that won't be put in until NICE have reviewed those processes as well. And so we need our own guidance in the England, which builds on what's gone already, but actually is very England specific because the NHS and the setup in here is much bigger. We have 55 million people in England. Scotland has 5 million people. London has more people almost than Scotland and Northern Ireland put together. And so we need setups mm-hmm. which meet the requirements and the demands and the structures that exist here. And so, yes, it's a starting point. It's a really important starting point that we take something and we can build on that with a view to sort of saying you need to monitor yourself because what's required is that trust will have to report against these quality standards. And there's lots of different areas where there's quality standards. And this is just one. You know, if it was the only one, it'd be great, but it's not. There's loads. So they still have to judge against all of these things, but it now exists. And so then you can say, we're not meeting criteria. What are we going to do about it? And then you can look and say, well, how do we structure it to try and improve the overall setup um, more broadly? So, yes, it's the start of a journey. But then what it has to be done is that we need to show the demand is real. We have to show, first of all, actually, we need to get people to that first question. We need to get them to believe it's real. We need to then demonstrate that there's something you can do about it, because that's the other problem is, because we're so focused on little creases on your heart hand sorry so anybody who's listening who's focused on that but but i would rather focus on what do you do about it you know how do we help you as we were talking offline beforehand how do we help you identify what to do when your kids are having a bad day and how to help you de-escalate it so you end up having a good day that for me is far more important but we spend so little time talking about it you know you know, we are doing work around trying to develop interventions. We're trying to identify ways of understanding vulnerability and changing that narrative to develop resilience. You know, we've just not, we've been unsuccessful in a funding bid with my group in, in Salford with Penny Cook, who's my main collaborator up there. Unfortunately, you know, there's lots of competition for these things, mm-hmm. but 
until we raise the importance of this, you know, there has never been a specific funding call for FASD. Never, not in the UK. So that means that actually trying to get good quality, big scale research in this area is a challenge. And that is a problem until we can get proper funding. And I'm talking seven figure funding to do proper research into this, this field. You know, we're playing around the edges and that's mm -hmm. the problem. Um, and what we need to do is answer the so what question, because so many people turn around and say, well, do you know what? You can't do anything about it. So what's the point of making the diagnosis? Well, actually, I'm sorry, we can do something about it. We've already got interventions that change the treatment pathway. We know how to moderate it based on that. We can change the long term narrative and outcome, but people don't realize that because they're still sticking to the thing which says actually, you know, okay, so let me go back to a piece of work that was done by a colleague of mine, Hans Spohr. Hans is a German pediatrician. Love him to death. He's a, such a nice man. But he dealt with people with more severe intellectual disability. So the people he followed up over 20 years all started off with a very low baseline. Now, that we know now isn't the typical individual with FASD. So if they look at that paper and say, this is the life expectations, it's always going to be a negative narrative. You know, but that was correct for his small caseload, which he showed right at the start with the most severe problems. What we need to know is, well, how do we manage the rest of them? Mm -hmm. What do we do to actually make the quality of lives of families and then understanding they grow up? You tell me your son's 14 and six foot, okay. you know, you know, he's going to be an adult very soon. Mm -hmm. And if he's not understood and he kicks off and the police arrest him, he's going to end up in prison. So how do we change how do we change that narrative? And so he gets protection and support, not negativity. And that's what we need to understand. And by intervening and getting those ideas and getting the evidence base, you know, the problem with NICE, and you'll see it being on the panel, is that they will do the reviews. They will collect the information and the evidence in order to shape what the future recommendations may be. And you'll have seen in the back of that, they'll rate the quality of that evidence. And unless you have gold standard randomized controlled trial evidence to show this intervention works, you know, people dismiss it as poor quality evidence. So what we're trying to do is to change that to say we want to develop good quality interventions, good quality research to actually show by doing it properly, this thing exists, there is something you can do about it. Go on, let's do it and let's get on with it. And that is where we're going to be leaving this week's episode. We got talking and time just ran away with us. So we have decided to split this guest interview into two separate episodes. So make sure that you tune in again next week to catch the second half of our conversation with Dr. Raja Mukherjee. Thank you very much for listening as always and goodbye.